0: Hi, this is Martin Fowler, and you're listening to the Agile Uprising. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Agile Uprising podcast. I am your host, Troy Lightfoot, and with me, I have my co-host, Chris Merman. Hello, Chris. Hello. Uh, nice to see you again. And we have a very special guest, someone that's been with the Agile Uprising for a long, long time, pretty much since the beginning. I don't know. Exactly. She's really old. Right. Oh. Uh, and um, uh, the we used to call her. It's funny, actually. We used to have a name for you, like a, a silly name called the Queen of Kanban. And then years later, you became the CEO of ProKanban.org. So it seems like we were prophets. We were totally prophetic about that. So anyway, uh, welcome uh, Colleen Johnson, who is the CEO of Uh Welcome, Colleen.
1: Thanks, Troy. Happy to be here. Yeah, I, I don't really want to consider myself like a queen of Kanban. Maybe I'm like the, I don't know. We're trying to distribute this knowledge around, right? <laughs> like...
0: Well, to Thank be you fair, you never gave yourself that title.
2: That was <laughs> I don't know, we gave you. So <laughs> you I, I just tell us saying. to stop calling her that, though, to be fair. <laughs> okay.
0: Well, it's a friendly title, you know? So, anyway, yes. well, so Colleen, do you want to give just a real brief intro uh, about yourself? So we, then we'll get started.
1: Yeah, that sounds great. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I am the CEO of proconbond.org and I'm an Agile coach with Agile Velocity. Um, uh, I've worn a lot of different hats as an entrepreneur and founder of ScatterSpoke, an online tool for retrospectives and dev team metrics and insights. Um, And in that, got an opportunity to play the product role um, more specifically. You know, we do a lot of coaching of how products should look, but that really gave me a chance to wear that product hat myself. And you know what? It's really fucking hard. (laughs) It's hard to... All the things we expect everyone to go do in that product role they're hard when it's your own when it's your own product and so i really enjoyed um being in that seat and having an opportunity to to do all the things that we coach to right around getting getting feedback from customers folding it into your product um but you know all the things that organizations struggle with and having releases with too much in them and trying to (laughs) add scope at the last minute or add too many things um to a feature so um, I, you know it's it's been a fun journey of um, being in a coaching and training seat but also being in the front seat to those roles that that we're often coaching
0: cool well uh thank you for the intro I'll say one thing I remembered so uh just full transparency so I trained for procommon.org so Colleen and I we've known each other for a long time but we have a working relationship that way too uh and in my I recently did a study group with one of my, uh, a few of my students, actually, where we did a deep dive on CFDs, and I taught them how to draw CFDs by hand. And what's funny is maybe eight years ago, it's that's, I feel like it's close to that now, I worked with you, Colleen, where you taught a class, and you taught me actually how to draw CFDs by hand on paper and do that by hand because I had only used them in a the tool. And I realized that once you do it by hand, you actually understand it much more in depth and how to use the tool. So I always teach people how to do it by hand, even for, digitally now. Um, so wanted to thank you for that, Colleen, because I still use that technique to this day. Teaching. I'm actually
1: headed back to New York next week. I think that's where we were when we. When
0: yeah. We yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so. Funny, <laughs> so, anyway, and I well, think every you. time so, I oh, tell that's...
1: everybody, "You'll never have to create a CFD chart by hand. Don't worry." And here you are.
0: <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> It's kind of like the Monte Carlo, like once you learn how to do it by hand, that it starts to all make sense kind of thing, right? It really does. So,
2: right. It's so. probably why I don't understand CFDs as well as you do, Charlie. <laughs>
0: okay. <it> <laughs> Very good. Well, hey, let's do it by hand sometime. Maybe we even write another podcast where we go through that. So, um, okay. So, Colleen, I saw a talk mm-hmm. yesterday. You were at the Product Owner Summit with some, some other big name players in the industry like Roman Pickler and and uh, Vasco Doherty, I think that's how you say his last name, Uh, and a a bunch of other uh, great folks. And you did a talk on the death of product roadmaps or product roadmap. And, you know, it's kind of a clickbait title, right? But uh, that's what it takes in this world to get anybody to look at your videos and podcasts anymore. So I'm going to have probably a clickbait title for this episode, by the way. So, um, and I just found it very interesting and apropos for, you know, what I've been doing in, in uh, in my career. And so I wanted to ask you, first question I had is the death of the product roadmap. Why do they need to die or are they dead already? I'm guessing they're not dead, but the the talk is really more about why they should die.
2: Or were they ever alive to begin with?
0: Right. So, uh, right. So if you could just go through, what do you mean by that? And, And if you could go over reasons, what is the case for why they would need to die?
1: Yeah, I, I wish they were dead. They're not dead. Okay. Uh, in the talk, and and the talk is still available on YouTube. I think for I for I don't think you have to register anything to get to that link. But the. Um, and we could put it in the show notes, but I really boiled it down to three things that I think are what's busted about the, not just the product roadmap itself as an artifact, but the process of getting to to a product roadmap. And there's three things, right? It's speculative, it's deterministic, and it's prescriptive. And it's speculative in, from the very get-go, right? Trying to decide right now what we're gonna deliver a year from now is ridiculous. <laughs> like, right. I think it's just such a crazy practice when we put it that way that we're gonna decide all the things that we should be working on a year from now. And if COVID taught us nothing, it should be that everything can change in the blink of an eye. Um, And that that doesn't really make sense, right? It doesn't make sense for us to try to be picking all of the features that every team is gonna deliver a year from now. Right. Um, And then, the other piece of the what, you know, what we're going to deliver is when. And that's where the deterministic piece comes in. And it's a big part of, you know, we this move towards more probabilistic forecasting is that there's a lot of different outcomes that are possible. Um, when we say deterministic, it means that only only one outcome is possible. And that means that we're going to start on this exact date and we're going to stop on this exact date, which is also almost always wrong right? And as soon as one thing on that Gantt chart's wrong, everything after it's wrong. So we're locking ourselves into something that's just not realistic from a delivery standpoint either. And then the prescriptive part comes in. In order to get all of those perfectly accurate start and stop times on our Gantt chart, um, we need to do a bunch of Um, estimating, right, and pointing and trying to figure out all of the work required to deliver those features. And so we start to get really prescriptive in order to do that, which means we need to know how we're going to execute or how we're going to deliver each of those features in order to come up with those time boxes. And so we spend all this time defining work that we're not going to touch for another eight months or 12 months or whatever the case may be. Um, and oftentimes we're not including the right people in those conversations or the people actually doing the work. And, um, and we're locking ourselves into when, what, and how we're going to deliver that stuff, um, without having any of the actual feedback from the customers.
0: Right. That thanks, Colleen. Um, I love it that, you know, those three things you mentioned, speculative, deterministic, and prescriptive. So maybe I, I can just talk for a second about, um, deterministic versus probabilistic thinking and why that's important for something like a product roadmap, right? So um, as you mentioned, deterministic thinking is is really assuming that there's only one possible outcome to something, right? So this is what the scope is going to be. This is what the timeline is going to be. And that is the outcome that's going to happen. That is deterministic. You know, Probabilistic thinking is basically just recognizing that, hey, maybe there's more than one possible thing that could happen during this time period. If there's more than one possible thing, then using a deterministic approach, um, is less than ideal. put it that way. So um, that's a little bit of a, a difference is one is just realizing, hey, maybe there's more than one possible thing. so therefore in order to to try to predict the future exactly um, is a problem. One uh, yeah, Troy, no, sorry Troy, can I ask a,
2: can I ask one quick follow-up before you move yeah, on? I apologize. Sure. Oh and and actually this is for you too, Troy. So all right, so Colin, everything you said, Troy, everything you said, they make perfect sense in this wonderful echo chamber that we have. and yet time after time, leader after leader, we talk to them and they think or think and say the opposite
0: yeah. why Why? All right, why Eileen, i'm going to since you're the guest i'll leave it to you
2: first <laughs> yeah why
1: why do they need it or why
2: no why did they like everything you said makes sense like why is it that why is it that leaders continually see the opposite as the as you know their their the truth that they see
1: um a lot of times i think it's our funding models right so our funding models are still often very project based where we have to fund by by the when what and and how we're going to deliver the feature and so i think that becomes a big part of it um but I think this is also kind of just an old school way of planning, right? And so that's it's giving organizations a sense of control that's just not there. Um, and I think we all love, you know, everybody wants to feel like they know what's gonna happen next. And so we're trying to figure out that plan for the whole year. I think it's a, it's a culture shift for a lot of organizations to get comfortable with what Troy just said, that probabilistic way of thinking that, um, maybe there's more than one possible outcome, and we don't know what we're going to work on next. We're going to wait and get feedback to decide. that That takes um retraining a lot of the way that businesses work. and it's it's not going to happen all at once, right? You have to kind of find the pockets of leaders that are willing to try to shift their thinking to that more exploratory kind of mindset,
0: okay. thanks for that, Colleen. So that leads me into my next question. As you mentioned about, portfolio Kanban systems versus a product roadmap in your talk. And um, maybe first of all, can you explain what you mean by that? Like difference between the two and how they're different?
1: Yeah, so, you know, a roadmap as we said has is typically defined what is going what we're going to work on and when we're going to work on it, when it's going to be delivered um, and everything required to deliver that feature. When we talk about a portfolio kanban system, we're really looking at all of the work in every different stage of that workflow from idea to delivery. Um, and this is important because for a lot of organizations we spend all of our time and energy managing the stuff that's actively being developed and not a lot of time looking upstream to figure out what ideas are on the table how do we validate those ideas how do we decide what to pull next all of that also requires time energy and attention um, around how we manage that flow of work into our teams so when we think about a portfolio kanban system it's creating visibility into all those different stages of work and it's also managing the work in the workflow and so What what becomes important here is is looking at capacity across the organization and trying to figure out how many things do we need to have ready for teams to pull and then giving them the opportunity to pick what they're going to work on next or have the organization pick what they're going to work on next when they have um, capacity to do so. So instead of jamming all this work up and assuming this is all the right stuff for us to pull next, we're, we're... picking what we're going to work on when we have um, when something moves to done essentially when that capacity opens up
0: awesome so one way that people tend to figure out their capacity is using story points and historical velocity right that's one way a pretty common way is there a different way you would recommend for this type of system
1: yeah, um, so there's a couple pieces when we talk about capacity at this level that we want to think about. We're looking, um, you know, typically at this level more at throughput of features, and it can be epic level as well. So we want to look at the throughput of work items in the past. How how many features are we getting done in a certain period of time, or how many? Mm-hmm. This can be story level, feature level, epic level, depending on how your organization breaks down their work. But we're going to look more at historical throughput and historical cycle time. Um, And this is important because it's inclusive of all that stuff that's hard to account for, right? When we're story pointing or when we're estimating future work, we're often thinking about our, our piece, right? How long will it take me to develop this feature? And it's not that people are trying to give us shitty estimates, right? They're not trying to sandbag. They're just thinking about here's my part, here's how long that part will take me. But we're not thinking about how long it sits waiting to be tested or packaged or deployed um, and all those other activities that turn our three-day estimate into two weeks. And so when when we use that historical throughput and cycle time, we get all of that baked in already Um, But when we think about how that capacity gets managed in that portfolio, we start to do that through work in progress limits. And um, my colleague at Pro Kanban, Prateek Singh, has this amazing article on Medium, I'll find it for the show notes as well, um, where he refers to WIP limits as our optimal operating capacity. And I think that's such a cool way to think about your whip limits, right? Because that's really what you're doing with a whip limit or work in progress limit is to say this is our optimal operating capacity for this stage of our workflow, whether that's product definition, design, develop, whatever your stages may look like. But we're starting to use those work in progress limits to say we can't handle more work than this without it sitting idle.
2: Hmm, yeah, I, I really struggle getting leaders to see that. It, I guess for for both from both of your perspective. Is it easier when you're dealing with that work at a portfolio level as opposed to like, say, uh, a Kanban board at a team level? Is it is it easier or harder to get leaders to see WIP limits at that portfolio level?
1: In my experience, I think it's, it's a little bit easier in certain pockets, right? So what often happens at the portfolio level is we set all the whip limits based off the number of engineering teams or engineering arts, right? Or whatever, however you wanna look at that. But we start there and we tend to ignore all the stuff upstream. So like a common pattern I see is where we'll, we'll say, this is, you know, at the portfolio level, this is how many value streams, arts, whatever your structure is. Um, that we have delivering, but we don't think about. Well, we only have two product managers that are doing all of the validation of all of the work that has to feed twenty development teams. That's not a ba- that's not balanced, right? So we either need more capacity, we need more people upstream to help balance that out, or we need less work in progress for the development teams, where maybe they're swarming on a couple epics or features at the same time. Troy, have you seen anything different around no, that? No, wh-
0: what you said is totally correct. You know, a lot of people focus on throughput and limiting whip on the board itself for the purposes of throughput but one of the biggest lessons that you know that i've learned over the years is that you should really think about limiting your whip on the input of your process right because that's going to help you with your flow so controlling the whip on the queue coming up next that kind of up next kind of style of working that will help you with eventually with your be able to achieve your flow and that will help you with your throughput and so you can try to match your throughput, somewhat, right, with the amount of input. So you can kind of look at your throughput and think about, okay, if we're getting as a portfolio, you know, ten features done per quarter or something like that, or whatever you're putting in your portfolio, common board. Then how many things should we bring be bringing onto our board? Should it be thirty, right? Should it be twenty? Should it be ten? Should you just have those conversations? And then you—that's one way of uh, uh, controlling the whip too.
1: Yeah, it's a great point, and and controlling that whip at the front end of your process also helps exactly with what we're talking about here of that not over planning, right? You're planning just in time. You're you're keeping the amount of next things to pull really small. And I think that you know it's it's interesting. And some of the simulations we do in kanban classes and same you know with you, Troy. Like one of the things that I think is always interesting when we ask the students, oh, well, like what happens when you um, reduce the number of things that are available for the team to pull? One of the one of the comments I hear most often is, oh, well, it's quicker to decide, right? Because if I only have two things to pick from instead of 200 things in a backlog, I know it's one of those two things that's the next highest priority. And that decision fatigue at a portfolio level is, is expensive, right? Think about all the people involved in making these decisions <clears throat> around what we're gonna pull next. So if we can apply that thinking of, shrinking the options down to just a few things around um, and, and limiting the amount of options that are available, we're, we're also making it a lot easier to make a decision on what we wanna work on next.
0: Awesome, one, one question I had um, that you mentioned in your talk, which is a pretty popular framework, um, not just in software development, but in any kind of portfolio management, um, which you kind of bring into your talk, which is the three horizons approach. You know, this approach comes from McKinsey. I think they documented it first in the 90s, actually. Yeah. Um, and it's other in other frameworks, like SAFE, for example, has part of their LPM process and things like that. And I think it's really valuable, by the way, SAFE. Like, regardless of the framework, that technique is pretty powerful. Um, so how do you see the three horizons falling into, or what is the relationship between the three horizons approach and with your portfolio Kanban system. How do you see those two things, Mary?
1: Yeah. Um, so I think when when I in the talk and when I teach about portfolio Kanban, I tend to think of the horizons more as investment strategy than as time horizons. And so it's a slightly mm. different approach, I think, for a lot of organizations. They use the term horizon to mean um what's closer and what's further out in the roadmap, right? Right,
2: right. <laughs> so- right, right.
1: If we're busting up those time boxes and we think of horizons more around investments, the McKinsey, the McKinsey article that you're referencing talks about yeah. horizon one being what's the what are the things that our customers expect us to have, their table stakes features? Um, horizon two, or what are the what are the things that we're gonna introduce to steal our competitors, customers? Right. And then three, or what are the crazy news new ideas that are gonna help us really innovate in the space that we're in? What are the things that no one's asking for yet? Um, And I like that model because every organization's probably gonna have a a different investment strategy and what those things need to look at depending on where they are in their journey. Um, But understanding that is gonna help you understand and help you figure out how many things you need to have um, that you're running experiments on, right? So horizon three things are probably very heavy in the experimentation model where you need to go out and throw a lot of spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. Horizon One features are probably not going to require a lot of investment upstream in that discovery cycle because your custom, you know what your customers need to have to be able to do the things that they need to do on your on your technology, right? So mm-hmm. um, I think the first part of that from a portfolio perspective is what are our investments? What do we want that to look like? And then how do we use that understanding of the breakdown of our investments to help us figure out how much discovery we need
0: upstream? I see. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Go ahead. Go All ahead. right, Troy. Go ahead. Go ahead.
2: Oh no, I, I the the I I've always tried to use um, the budget kind of scenario, to, you know, it, as a different way of describing what you did, Colleen. the The challenge that I have, especially with the portfolio Kanban, is like operational type work that Horizon One type, you know, type of like. So I had a my my recent client described it as like always on or like support style work. It's it's got a different funding model than than capitalizable work. Um also it completely screws with your wip limits because if you've got whether it's an epic or a feature or whatever, you've got this bucket of operational support work that that really it 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 almost lives to mess with the board and 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 limits that you have. So when when clients throw those at at you at you two, like what's the what's the easiest way to, to kind of compartmentalize that work without breaking the whole thing?
1: Yeah, I guess um I'll take a swing in it. And Troy, I'm curious to hear your response too. But the, sure. you know, work, work is work. And so it's like, um, it doesn't matter if I'm baking a cake or vacuuming the floor. I might have to vacuum every couple of days because I've got three kids and a dog, but the cake is more exciting. Maybe I'm gonna make money off that cake. I don't know. But um, if you think about it, it's all just still work. It all is using up your team's capacity, attention, time, and available resources, right? And so if we look at it from that perspective, um, it uses your it uses WIP the same way, that op- operating capacity the same way, um, and needs to be represented that way on your board. So I think it's, to me, it's being able to visualize that breakdown of um, what's our ideal investment strategy look like, so that if your organization says, <clears throat> We want, excuse me, we want 20% of our work to be keep the lights on and 70% to be Horizon 2 Steel customers and 10% to be Horizon 3. If you can color code that or visualize that on your product board, that's going to help you figure out what to pull next. So if you have 10 epics in flight and half your board is keep the lights on work, you know that, hey, we need to balance out our portfolio a little bit here. The next thing we pull in should be something that's in Horizon 2 or 3. Um, so I think the first step is what's our ideal investment and then how do you visualize that and leverage that information to help you figure out what to pull next?
0: Great answer, yeah. Carly. And I would like to add to that answer because I everything you said and um, one way of doing it is a lot of times the operational type work might not be as large as a lot of the other type of initiatives that might be on a portfolio combine board. Now, some of them might be, and if that case, then they go on the board with everything else. But if it's just maintenance small improvements things like that you could just have the teams or team of teams construct uh set their own individual capacity for example like hey this is this doesn't have to come through the portfolio system you just pull it when you have capacity right and then would they also know what's on the common board you're giving them options and they can pull those things when they have capacity so it's essentially managing their own capacity so they might say hey 15% 15% of our capacity is gonna to go towards work that's not even going to the portfolio level. I'm using it as an example, right? Operational maintenance enhancements. The people at the portfolio level, they don't even have to worry about these stuff. It's like run the business work. And that just gets pulled through their own capacity. And then they pull things off the portfolio Kanban board. So it could be a, a mix of both is what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, yeah, I like that. And I think you know what's important when we start to think about how these Kanban boards nest up kind of into, into these different levels is having this structure at the portfolio level starts to trickle down, right? And what I see for a lot of organizations, whether it's Scrum or Kanban at the team level, we're so focused on um, the efficiency of the process, right? Is everybody busy? Are we cranking out or you know, is our velocity improving? um but we we start to get disconnected from the work at this portfolio level so our velocity might look great and everybody's you know we're following scrum by the book or kanban by the book at the team level but is it the right work like are we delivering the right things are we making progress on those big rocks um, and getting those things to done and i think that's where the power in the portfolio kanban really comes you know comes together it starts to bring all of the teams focus to the things to, that the organization decides matter the most
0: Right. Thanks, Carly. I, I wanted to add something because in your talk, I took a note, actually, and it reminded me a little bit of when people say, hey, this thing is agile. So many people equate Scrum with agile. It's like, I don't know, but I don't know why that is. But but it's I guess it's like people calling a soda a Coke even though not all soda is Coke, right? Kind of thing. A lot of people like Pepsi, you know? So, And I I like Diet Pepsi, or Pepsi Zero, I should say. So anyway, um, but I don't call it a Coke for sure. So the first principle, so you talked, Colleen, about doing all of the Agile practices. You could be the best at the practices of Agile, right? But that doesn't mean you're actually gonna be getting any kind of business results if you're not delivering the right thing, right? So the practices of Agile should really be there to and help enhance the ability to learn if we're building the right things, right? And so you made a a comment about in your talk and i I took a note i'm gonna uh, read it It says think about a product portfolio as a set of bets that you incrementally invest more into aka assign capacity to so it's basically how can we create a series of small quote-unquote bets at a portfolio level right and that you assign, and people that have the capacity will pull those bets once it's in the queue, right? And then you prioritize that based on your, those horizons approach, right? Based on your strategy. And I love that because then it makes sense where if we have really efficient and effective agile practices, we can actually see the results of those bets much faster with good quality because like, for example, conti- um, sorry, um, our highest priority is to satisfy the customer through early and continuous delivery, right? That's kind of that first uh, principle of Agile. And so the whole, that marries very well with the concept of placing small bets that allows us to do this early and continuous delivery. So that is how it all feeds together, um, scrum or not, is what I'm saying. So uh, it's really a, regardless of the process. So it makes a lot of sense to me. I don't know, Chris, do you have any thoughts about that?
2: No, I... I, I... I don't have anything additional to add. It's it's okay. kind of hard when you when you say all the genie stuff in one one Oh, chat. come
0: on now. Come on now. I read, <laughs> I read I read I read a post on LinkedIn that said agile processes were this is a side note but it just reminded me of this. Agile processes were designed by engineers. Therefore, we don't live in an engineer world, we live in a product world. Therefore, uh the agile processes aren't good. Like I'm like what that doesn't even make any sense. What you're just describing makes zero sense. But anyway, sorry because if you have to marry the two things together, right? They were designed for learning fast, iterative development, learning about your customers, learning what's working, what isn't. That's the reason why we're the design in the first place. Anyway, that's that I digress. I did have one question for you, Colleen. This might be uh, like a devil's advocate type of question, but I would imagine you might get this type of question if you work with leadership or senior leader. That question is okay. Well and good, right? We have a portfolio combine, we do horizons, we break them down into smaller chunks, okay. What about if I'm planning a product at scale, which is a product of products, right? So for example, I'm trying to build a new iPhone, right? I have a bunch of software, firmware, hardware, other apps that are involved in that that have to be ready in order to launch an iPhone. If I don't have a visual product roadmap of the next three to five years, how the hell am I going to coordinate all of these teams and areas of the company? That is a question you might get, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and it, yeah. and it's you you still can have a roadmap, right? We still have we still have a list of things that have <laughs> to get done, of okay. options that are in our backlog, right? right? But what's going to be interesting here, and the, and hardware is a great example of this. And, and right now, our world climate is a great example of this. What happens if there's a shortage of one of the parts that you need to be able to do the next thing in your roadmap, mm-hmm. right? So having what we're talking about here is flexibility on what you work on next. And so being able to respond to what's happening happening in your supply chain, what's happening, hey, we just laid off half of our company, <laughs> half of our right. technology team, right? right? So now we're going to pivot and we're going to pull this other thing that maybe is a, is a you know, pared down version of what we originally thought we were going to build next. So Mm -hmm. it's really about the flexibility to respond to what's going on and pull based on those events, based on what is available to you in the moment um, that this is all about. So it's, you know, you can still have an idea of what things need to to be true to launch your new phone. Right. But it's, it's about the flexibility of the order that we're doing them in Mm. and the responsiveness of what's going on in your, your climate, your market, your organization. Um, so that you, and, and from your customers, right. If our goal, like you said, our small bets is to learn as quickly as possible. How can you, um, get something in front of customers or a test market of customers as quickly as possible to make sure that you're on the right track and, and yeah. respond to that feedback.
0: That makes sense. I, I, this is what I was thinking, Kelly, when I, when I listened to your talk is that there's nothing inherently wrong with having a roadmap. This is my thought. It's more about How those roadmaps are developed and used that makes them the problem, right? Like if you want to use it as a way of sketching out things that might have to happen over a timeline logically to to do something, right? If that's like an exercise that's helping you do that and you want to communicate that with people, then it makes sense, right? But as soon as you use it to say, this is exactly when every single thing is going to be delivered. Or if you don't just say that, but someone sees that and that's what they interpret in their head, that's often what happens that's when it becomes a problem, right? So it's really about marrying what you said about the portfolio Kanban system with how can we do that and if necessary, use a visual indicator of things over time that we might build, but not have people interpret it as a deterministic approach. Yeah. Have you found yeah. any success with using those two things together? It's almost
2: Troy, like you said that it's not the tool or the framework, it's the problem. It's the humans that use it. <laughs> yes, yes. I feel like I correct. just said what you said with less words.
0: Very, that, I need you know I need you all the time around me, Chris. To just <laughs> are you kidding me? I'm
2: Captain Wordy. That's yeah.
0: fine. <laughs> yeah. Colleen, what are your thoughts about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's all about all of what we're trying to do from a lean perspective is about reducing the waste, right? Reducing waste in what we're doing. And, and I think if you boiled down what you just said and what we were talking about at the very beginning about what's not working around roadmaps, it's all the upfront waste, right? It's Mm -hmm. waste around how we have, what we have to do to get that roadmap pulled together. That's Wasted effort, wasted time, and it's inaccurate usually at the end of the day. So it's shifting our thinking. You can still think through what are all the pieces that need to come together to deliver something. And it can all be horizon one or it can be very hardware driven, but it's creating a system that's flexible in how we approach that work and can respond to changes in our environment. So I think right. that I think the way you said it is spot on. Well,
0: thank you. So one way I like to do that to kind of marry the two approaches is to put together a series of goals and a way of measuring those goals over time with the the notion that this will likely change, right? And you can visualize that with some functionality that might have to go and then other things that are optional for that. But using a goal-based approach to a roadmap and relying less on specific timelines of individual features, right? Is a way of marrying the flexibility with a just-in-time approach to prioritization. Um, and there's ways to do that. Uh, I typically will, if I do help somebody create a visual roadmap, I will always put like what goals we're trying to achieve if they want to use a timeline and how we're going to measure those goals, what things we might need to get feedback on, and then caveat that with this is what we're thinking now. Not only will it likely change, it's almost guaranteed to change. Just let people know that. Like, but yeah. we have thought through what we, the best we know right now, we've thought through that. Right.
2: Like roadmaps, roadmaps are just like plans. They make people feel comfortable. Oh, I know what we're well. You you want transparency and and openness with with what we have going on. This is what we have planned. Like, please give us the same funding or more funding. We want to keep doing this. The problem is is that if like if we could dedicate like to back to your building the next iPhone kind of a thing, a lot of those teams are dedicated to building only those things. Like they don't get support tickets. Right. right, they don't get the they don't get the keep the lights on stuff. They are set aside and dedicated to putting those things. So you could say, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna create teams to be dedicated to doing this work. Here's the roadmap. Go build it. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that funding changes, the economy changes, the 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 organization changes. Like mm-hmm. they re you know we reorg every twelve to twelve to eighteen months. So if that's the case, like why are we building something permanent? or semi-permanent when we know nothing else happens i always tell leaders like why would you why would you set up something to where it's either deliver all of it or you deliver none of the value right so if right. you have a binary set of value you then then you're you're not living in a, a you know in the 2020s like cuz that's not how companies operate anymore
1: well, and right. I think what you said, Merman, always reminds me of like one of, one of my biggest pet peeves in the product space is when I hear a product owner or product manager say they have to keep their teams busy. Like I have to go find work to keep my team busy. And I think we see that a lot because we have all these separate streams with separate roadmaps and separate sets of priorities that that at the end of the day, become what you just described, right? I built this team that can only do iOS development. Now we have to keep a steady stream of work ready for them at all times. So you have, a, now we have separate roadmaps designed to keep people busy instead of to align around that value at the portfolio level. Well,
2: right. yeah, because if you ask their team members, they would not say, no, don't, no, don't go get us more work. We have plenty to do. Right. So,
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great point. Well, um, Colleen, anything, I think we're about at time, anything you'd like to leave for a parting word, anything you'd like to tell people to go check out, up yeah. to you now, whatever you yeah, want. Yeah,
1: I think, you know, what you were starting to describe there with, with um, what's the lightest weight thing that can move through our system really comes down to to having clarity around your workflow policies. Mm-hmm. So what has to be true in each state? for something, for an Epic, for a feature to move from one stage to the next of our workflow. And and for most of the organizations where I've had the opportunity to to design a portfolio system that's truly theirs and that that shows their workflow and their workflow policies um, organizations tend to, to use this as a way to kind of police everybody it's like it's like here's all the things that aren't happening that I'm going to require a checklist for that so I can make sure um, we check every box before a feature gets into development and um, I think, you know, and circling back to the elimination of waste here and making this process as lightweight as possible so that we aren't wasting a bunch of upfront effort. Um, we want to think about how do we make this as simple and as, as light as possible so things can move through and um, that we are more comfortable saying, oh, we're not going to work on that. We're going to throw this away. And and that starts with not spending six months trying to define it so we can get an estimate for a roadmap, right? So start lightweight. Um, And focus on pull, focus on pulling work over planning. So having clarity around what your pull criteria looks like, having good options um, that can move through your workflow when you Mm -hmm. have the capacity to pull them.
0: Beautiful. I want to give one additional kind of resource for people to add on to that. So because maybe she's being humble and doesn't want to plug herself, I will plug her uh, company. So, uh, so uh, this is all free when I'm about to mention, by the way. So there, there's nothing you have to buy for the next part. So Colleen is the CEO of Um, and she works with folks like Pratik Singh and Dan Vicanti and, and a bunch of wonderful people over there at prokanban.org. Anyway, there is a free resources section. So if you go to Pro, ProKamban.org, look at resources, and kind of go down to where it says Scaling Portfolio Kanban Learning Resources, you will find a bunch of different articles, Blog posts, books that you can read to help you get started with this approach, right? Um, and it's all free, right? So I just want to throw that out there. That is, there's no money for that, uh, and that's a really fantastic way of of going about it. If you happen to want to have like an instructor led understanding of this stuff, they also a Prokamander also has. Um, Uh, like official training classes and things like that but in order to get started you can literally just go to the resources section and start reading for free and you don't have to pay a dime so
2: that's right for those of you that have listened to troy on podcasts and at like 30 minute 45 minute chunks and said man he sounds so smart like you could get to listen to him for an entire class
1: (laughs) Sit there for days and listen to troy
2: I mean, All right. Well, thank uh, like, you. It's, it's, uh, it's, I appreciate I it. I make like, listen, this sounds like I'm making fun of him. He's t- 10 times smarter than I am. Like yes. you, you, trust me, if you listen to him in a class, you will pick up so much stuff.
0: Well, I appreciate that, Chris, but I totally disagree with you. I think um, uh, if you think about a bell curve, we're all probably similar in that, right? So that's okay. Uh, but anyway, so, uh, but anyway, so thank you um, for that. Oh, one more thing. There's a free Slack channel that you can uh, join. It's totally free. You can go in there and ask any questions you want and there's a bunch of trainers and people in the community that will talk to you. It's a pro a free Slack. So if you read the resources, you're like, you know, I want to talk to some people about this and you don't want to pay any money. You can go to the Slack channels as well. So all free. So it would be helpful. And of course, our own Agile Horizon Discord, of course, which is also free. So a couple of different resources for you there. Well, thanks, Chris. Thanks, Colleen. I had a good time. Hopefully people found this interesting uh, or... At a very minimal, a very minimally. I uh, hope people found it interesting, actually. So uh, that's, that's a minimum requirement for doing a podcast, I think. So anyway, uh, so thank you very much, everybody.